Hello and welcome to K-Talks. My name is Rastko Petakovic. When people speak about threats from AI, most often they associate risks with machine sentience and disobedience, and us humans losing control over machines, the Terminator scenario. Just take Boston Dynamics robots as an example. They went viral in a YouTube video where they adorably tried to keep balance when pushed by engineers. But then fast forward to 2020, with the world losing control of a pandemic and going into lockdown. Then their robot dog, adorably named Spot, is now seen policing in parks and issuing orders to crowds. Now, those scenes looked exceptionally sinister and also went viral. And as we direct our attention, our mistrust and disgust on Spot, we may all too easily overlook another machine that arrested our attention in a blink of an eye and suggested we watch both of those videos and many, many more. The AI is here and now. It spends every nanosecond learning with billions of teachers, us, giving it their full attention. Our present is already massively AI driven and our future surely will be too. From convenience use cases like autonomous driving to AI-assisted cameras and communication surveillance, there are many ethical lines to be drawn. This is one such conversation. In this episode, I'm speaking with Ivana Bartoletti. Ivana is a privacy and ethics consultant, a public speaker and a book author. She focuses on AI and ethics, privacy by design and blockchain, and the ethical perspectives of technology and innovation. In 2020, she published a book titled An Artificial Revolution on Power, Politics and AI. Even as publisher was kind enough to offer a discount code for purchase to our listeners. The code is provided in the show notes together with a list of references Ivana suggests for this topic. The audio is not ideal and I'm sorry for this. We're still recording remotely, and in this case, uh, we had to use our backup recording. However, I enjoyed this conversation, and I hope the quality of our discussion will make up for it. Enjoy. Uh, Ivana, as we were preparing for this conversation, I recall you mentioning your connections, uh, your ties to the region. Uh, you are originally from Italy, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and you studied in, in Trieste, which is uh, you know, almost a part of Yugoslavia, almost a part of, uh, of this region. So what, what kind of memories uh, does this region bring to you? Youth, obviously. <laughs> and and uh, yes, I mean, I remember the beauty of, uh, of studying in Trieste and, and being able to drive down and, and go to, uh, I remember a trip to Belgrade, I remember a trip to Novi Sad, I remember, yeah, it was really, really good. I remember a lot of Chivavci with, with friends and, uh, and uh, uh, it, it was really good. So I've got a lot of memories of, of being young and uh, and uh, passing exams and and therefore treating uh, myself to to a trip to the region. Yeah, that's that that sounds like uh, like a real uh, sort of Yugoslav romance. Let's let's put it that way. <laughs> that way, yes. <laughs> yeah. I have I have actually read your book and and I really liked it uh, and and I want to discuss the the topic of AI and ethics uh, in a broad sense uh, as you cover it in your book uh, in in the sense that it correlates with so many uh, uh, ethical and political topics but I actually want to start with uh, with a topic that is very relevant to this very region it is relevant worldwide as well but uh, it is one of these points where we see the technology actually making uh, a difference and not a difference in a good way and this is false news or or fake news as it's uh, often referred and you know it is uh, a sort of a, a, a child of the information era, as it is uh, globally. But I want to focus it, uh, you know, even more specifically 
onto uh, maybe you know smartphone era because you know information era is is with us for for some time now but i think you know uh, i read somewhere that in 2008 uh, which was the year that apple started delivering the the first iphones to customers uh, the data traffic in the us uh, had doubled yeah. and uh, you know it is not only about the amount of information uh, exchange it is also about the convenience that the mobile has brought in the in the body of a smartphone so it is about sort of instant gratification instant information uh you know screen sized pieces of information that that has actually in many ways uh, changed the paradigm of uh, consuming news and consuming content uh, in in general um, and so you know let's let's begin with the with this how do you uh, connect the dots between the this explosion in uh, terms of uh, the amount of information, uh, the decreasing uh, standards of quality in journalism and, and fake news. Are these in, in some way uh, related and how we can track it back and can we track it back to technology? Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question. I think you, you framed it beautifully because too often we see these things being very far apart. So I think there are different phenomena here and, and I don't know, if you agree with me, but I think, I mean, there are different things coming to, to play. First of all is the business model of some of these large technology platforms, right? So you have the the Facebook, the Google, and the fact that, you know, one of the key things for uh, these platforms to work is to keep people engaged. And to keep people engaged, then what, what often happens is that you have to put out things that are able to polarize and to, to really gauge people's attention so that people can um, can really um, click and, and so the attention economy um, is probably the first thing that we need to look at. So the attention economy is a first element. The second element is the business model of these large platforms um, and how they need uh, they they need to they, they basically build on on the attention economy and they really need to to make sure that people are engaged and they click on the ads um, or you know anything that is out there. And um, the third element is the behavioural targeting the behavior advertising um that is the fact that you basically um the basic basically you um are able to identify somebody uh um even sort of what they like what they don't like even i would say their weaknesses uh, by looking at their browsing history what they do which site they visit and what type what they type and even what they start typing and they don't publish i think there's three elements together um, they all the three of them together they are behind of a lot of what you're saying about fake news because that means that at the time where you um, you have so much content out there um, that you um, every time that there is a news a piece of a, a, a new item then there is the exact opposite of it and they both had the same validity um, so within this context where there is so much out there I think the combination of a detention economy the business model of some of these platforms plus the behavioral advertising means that you've created a very powerful weapon um, a powerful weapon to really target individuals based on on the on their on their interest based on what they like and act as a real echo chamber and basically acting as a real gateway to what they're allowed to see and what they are not seeing online this echo chamber is probably what is driving a lot of the paralyzation and a lot of you know and, and is a very fertile territory for for fake information so yes certainly there is a link between all the, the elements that you mentioned right and if we look at it culturally and and historically you know the these inflection points where the new technologies would uh, skyrocket would uh, emerge and then become you know dominant ways of spreading of information beat uh, you know the the printing press uh, or uh, radio and television. I think we mentioned this at uh, you know during our preparation, uh, and and now the social media and you know television before before that. Um, it seems that whenever there is such a new technology emerging that is that that has the ability to 
bring more information exponentially to uh, consumers. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm using the word consumer intentionally because it is not just the citizens, people. It seems that with the social media and, as you say, the, the attention economy, it is more about the consumers. Um, it seems that this might also uh, lead to some, you know, unwanted cultural movements, unwanted political movements emerging as well. And we are seeing that across our region. We are seeing that uh, across the world. We saw that in the U.S. Um, and, and, you know, how long do you think it will take for the sort of, a, I would call it, civic, civic movement to catch up? with uh, with uh, with this because it always seems that it is you know the 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 bad forces let's put it that way the bad forces who take uh these new technologies first they are the first movers uh win them and it takes uh quite some time for the kind of the the ethical part of the society which i believe is is the majority to catch up with this yeah i mean it's it's an interesting one isn't it because so i think i think we are paying the consequences of a digital ecosystem which has grown and completely wild. Um, if you think about, you know, how long it took for the GDPR to come into force, you know, the debate mm. that we had for a decade, uh, we are talking about algorithmic transparency years after algorithmic driven digital advertising and the fact that you can target individuals um, by inf on information that you know about them. Um, not just what they've provided, but also what you've inferred about them. So if you think that somebody can have and can, is on the verge of having a nerve, nervous breakdown, potentially you can target them with information about a trip to Las Vegas or a shot of betting age shop because you know that when somebody is having a breakdown, they are more prone to spend money, potentially. So the thing is, this this ecosystem has grown so wild um, I mean, look at the layers in behind the single ad that you see when you browse the internet. There is a real stock exchange behind it. You know, it's called the real-time bidding process. And your data, personal data, is broadcast out to millions of organizations and companies. You don't even know what they are. So the reason why I'm saying this is because we've got a lot of catching up to do. You know, this system is really organized. You know, there is, you know, people don't understand, but when you when you browse the internet and there is an advert that pops up, you know, you browse for a pair of shoes or, or jewelry, which, you know, I like, you know, you, and then what happens and you get an advert with a, sort of a pair of shoes or whatever it is, that is okay to an extent, you know, fair, fair okay. Mm -hmm. But then you get things that are much more intrusive because this system, you know, it's so organized. And we, you know, we are late. Politics is dramatically late. You know, do you remember the Congress when they interviewed Zuckerberg the first time? I mean, <laughs> it, it was like, I mean, they asked Zuckerberg, you know, how do you make money? You know, it's like, mm. it was really surreal how late and behind everybody was. Mm. And these are the policymakers. But look, I think everybody's late. You know, we, I don't think people, you know, everybody... You know, when you browse the internet, it's impossible to know what happens to you. I mean, there is a lot of deception by design. Now, no, forget privacy by design, but, in, you know, there's a lot of dark patterns. You know, you browse the internet and you're basically forced into solutions, forced into accepting because there's no other way. And then people say, well, people, you know, there's the, the famous thing. People say, well, people don't really care about privacy because in reality they click on whatever they like. But it's not true. People do care. But what is the alternative? You know, there is nothing else to do. So what I'm saying is things are shifting, aren't they, now? Because I think people are realizing that there's a lot of stake here, that, you know, that information, that algorithms are becoming policymakers. They're becoming edit. They have an editorial function. They edit reality, society for you. And also they've realized that things are getting even more polarized. I mean, look at the vaccines now. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable what's going on. And they've also, I think, people have realized that, you know, that, that a lot of the algorithms that we're using, whether it's online or not online, they are making huge decisions about us. And, and I'm extremely happy that Code Bias, the film about 
algorithmic bias is streaming on Netflix. Recently, we had The Social Dilemma. Uh, we had another film, I Human. You know, these things are becoming mainstream. So I think we're catching up on a system which has let and has let us down and a system that was born to bring democracy and born to democratize society and to make us more free, then in reality, it's not just turned the way that we want it to turn. And now people are waking up to it. Mm. Yes. And, and we mentioned just before this, uh, this conversation, uh, the, you know, Apple has recently, uh, well, Apple has in, in recent years started doing um, more let's put it that way, uh, in, in terms of protecting user privacy. But now as it rolls out new initiatives like this ATT that is uh, actually aimed at preventing uh, your device from broadcasting your identifier, which is actually the way uh, in which most of the, uh, most of the tech companies are tracking uh, users. Um, you know, as soon as that was announced, uh, there was immediately a backlash, you know, immediately backlash. This is actually being done in order to strengthen Apple's dominance in the in the field. It is because they want to protect, the, you know, their position in their app store to protect their digital ecosystem. And I have to say, as a competition lawyer, I tend to agree in part with this and 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 it seems to be you know uh that that the truth is halfway there and it seems that you know the the, the privacy uh, initiatives uh that emerge out of the uh you know out of the tech companies seem to be only partly associated with ethics insofar as it um, you know furthers its uh, marketing agenda but not because there is um, th there is a real money to be made uh, over there. So how do you see that gap being uh, bridged? Yeah, I mean, you're a competition lawyer, you know, so you know about these things far more than I do. But, you know, I think for a long time, we in the privacy world, we've basically said, well, you know, privacy and competition need to work together. Um, because actually there is a huge competitive advantage in companies that have a lot of data. Mm. Um, the, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, when there's a merger between companies, we've seen this with Microsoft, LinkedIn, we've seen this across the entire, you know, the, the last 20 years, basically. What is happening now is that competition lawyers are, and competition authorities are starting to say, hey, you know, there is something here which is, it's not right, you know, there's too much data um, accumulation and that cannot work. However, the, with the Apple that uh, you mentioned, but I wouldn't just say that. I mean, look at Google and look at Google um, the withdrawing the third-party cookies. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and Google is just the last one to get there. Mm -hmm. You know, Mozilla has done it, you know, um, and Safari's done it, and now Google, they've said from January 2022, we are not going to use third-party data. And immediately, competition authorities have said, I mean, look at the CMA in the UK for sure. Mm. They said, hold on, there's a problem here, because if you remove that, then you are entrenching the power of the world gardens even further because publishers will have to rely on second-party data coming from Facebook and Google and others. So the, the problem is that in this case, you know, there seems to be a conflict between competition and privacy. Realities, as you say, in my views, is, is somewhere in the middle, because the reality is that there was no way that we could leave the ecosystem as it is now, third-party data had to go. <laughs> so there's no point. Um, Apple's choices are also ine inevitable to an extent, and uh, and Apple has also made always made privacy as, as a competitive advantage. But you know, situation had to change. Whether the way that is changing now will lead to competition, even more serious competition issues, that is probably true. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that's a separate issue that has to do with infrastructure and has to do with with the way that we look at these big and large tech companies and how we continue to perceive them. 
um, if we have the courage to see them as, as public utilities or, or not. And also if they, we have the way, we, we have the courage to do what, I mean, the European Union is, is, is doing with the digital um, services and digital markets act, you know, to open up their um, data and allowing other organizations to have access to the data as well. Um, so it's, I think the relationship between competition law and privacy law is a really interesting one. Um, but in this case, I, you know, I think, I think that the system cannot, couldn't stay as it was, you know, it, it, you just can't go on with, with as it is. And, but at the same time, you know, we do have to face up to the problem that we are, you know, we have this sort of major tech companies that are to an extent acting as privacy regulators themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you mentioned data being uh, the, the, the source, they, they call it the, the new oil, uh, the, the source of uh, actually power economic power of uh, of the tech companies and and how unaware the consumers are as to the extent of this power and to the extent of this information that is being kept um, the the way they gather this information and the way they use this this information is actually uh, by by technology and uh, uh, in in recent years it is not only about the, the the scope of the data that exists it is also about new ways of of gathering uh, the the information and also the new ways of using that information uh, to target the uh, consumers and to use it in 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 other uh, marketed or marketable ways um, and this trend this ability of technology to be used in this way is actually again significantly exacerbated by the uh, development of, of AI, of uh, new algorithms, of uh, so, some of which are safely guarded within the walls of, uh, of different tech companies, some of which are, are uh, open source. But, you know, this, these tools are growing uh, exponentially in um, significance and they're growing exponenti exponentially in terms of power uh, of them being used and this is actually the, the key topic of, uh, of your book so how do you see let's start with this how do you see the uh, um, what was the the main driver? What was the again the inflection point that has led to uh, the AI being so ubiquitous and so widespread in uh, in technology? Yeah, I mean, I think it's first of all yes, true. I mean, AI is everywhere, but I I think we need to be a little bit honest to to with ourselves you know and say well when people talk about ai they think about terminator and uh, and and the robots and and you know they're sort of either terrifying or idyllic situations you know it's either terrifying because it's terminator killing you or it's either idyllic because you know you have robots doing everything and you're just sitting by the pool doing absolutely nothing um which you know which, uh, it's it, you know the both of them are totally unrealistic um and not because robots wouldn't be able to to be programmed to cook or serve but because because you know this they are programmed by you by humans you know and no doubt that humans will ever want to do that um so um the AI is, is, is all, you know, the, the reason why we see a lot of these applications now uh, and not Terminator, but we see a lot of the applications in Google Maps in, in, in you know, Fitbit or whatever we use when we go and, and um, the, the algorithms, the, the adverts that get served when you browse the internet, you know, they choose you to say, I'm going to serve you this. This is all machine learning now driven, but um, with machine learning be a subset, you know, of AI as, you know, geometry is a subset to mathematics, but the... The, the thing in my view is that there's two things. One is the availability of data, and the second is the huge computation power that we've got now that we didn't have before. So um, the ability to feed a lot of data into the systems that has allowed the use of, of this data to identify patterns of behavior, uh, to identify correlation between phenomenal things. But, but to be honest, apart from the availability of data and the power, the computing power, I think that the main things have been the trends over the last decade. You know, there have been trends of surveillance, surveilling mm. everything, 
uh, and a trend of datification, which is that every single thing that happens has to be trans every single political, social, economic phenomenon, and and has to has to be translated into data, um, which is which is extremely problematic for many different reasons. And to add to that. Um, there is a, a social scientist, a scientist in, in the US called Meredith Broussard, who is absolutely great. And she used the term techno chauvinism. You know, the, the other trend of this last 20 years has been that automatically everything that is technical and technological has to be better than another alternative. You know, so mm. I think there's three trends, you know, that have come together to really skyrocket the use of, of artificial intelligence across different systems. Um, but I'm not sure that, you know, that, um, but it's been some interesting things happening and some really wonderful creations and, and, and opportunities alongside some quite terrifying um, outputs and risks. Um, you, you mentioned uh, AI and, and machine learning and uh, robots or terminators. I think this is a very good metaphor, although I have to say that uh, I, I wasn't completely at ease when I saw that Boston Dynamics uh, robot patrolling. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, I think that, that brings uh, in the, 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 the memories of, of these horror or, or sci-fi movies. Um, but, you know, apart from that, I think when we speak about artificial intelligence, there is this term artificial general intelligence, there is uh, machine learning, there is a supervised uh, way of uh, learning, there is unsupervised learning. Um, how, uh, let's, let's uh, try to come up with a question here, but it, it seems to me that unless we are uh, we have we as a, as a society as as members of the society have a broader knowledge of all of these uh, issues and and understanding uh, at least basic understanding on how that works and what are these uh, the function functionalities and the limitations of it the way it learns I think unless we know that it is very difficult to get this broader uh, awareness of how it can be uh, used I always uh, think of an example you know the deep blue one against uh, Kasparov in the in the 90s and yes that was a, a big moment although Kat Kasparov thinks that uh, you know he could have won in the next uh, in, the, in the next round but then we have uh, you know, two decades pass, and we have uh, AlphaGo, that is, uh, uh, you know, again uh, a monster of its uh, of, of, of in its own right. And um, I think when, when you go then when you go in depth into that, you realize that in these sort of uh, game algorithms, uh, there there has been a lot of progress, and you know that is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, unsupervised uh, learning. It is yeah. you know giving it the parameters and then allowing it to to run simulations. Uh, but then there is a lot of supervised uh, learning, and it seems to me that unless we get a good grasp or at least a general grasp of, of all of this, it is very difficult to make informed decisions. Do you maybe share this view or, or think that we can, we can do more even without this uh, basic knowledge? Uh, I don't, I, I, I agree. The, the mm. question I have for you is what does it mean to make an informed decision? Mm. Well, to, to be, to be, uh, uh, let's say, um, to be a political being, to be somebody who, who actually goes there to a protest or, or signs a petition in an informed way or understands the nuances of, uh, you know, usefulness of technology versus the, the, the bad side. So in, in that sense, you know, being a, a part of the society that actually pushes this uh, into, the, into the political agenda. Yeah, I mean, when you mentioned the the MIT labs and the dogs, right? <laughs> I thought, yeah, I mean, when I saw that image, I thought, yeah, you know, we're thinking about how to get involved in, in ethics and, you know, 10 years down the line would be killed by dogs, you know, mm -hmm. uh, by automated dogs, you know. So the reason why I, I thought about that is because I'm thinking, you know, things are happening and we don't even realize. And, and you're right, you know, it's like, um, you know, smart cities, smart homes, um, uh, decisions made around us in the banking sector, um, decisions made around around um, 
you know, whether we can have a loan or not, or whether we've been interviewed for a job, or uh, decisions around whether we can be promoted, um, how much we are surveilled now working from home with a pandemic, um, whether we have a, an automated system able to, to recognise whether there are other, other people in the house, uh, and therefore, um, you know, not focused enough on our job. All of this is happening. And that challenges the way that we've, it challenges everything. So I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, of involvement and I'm thinking about labor rights and trade unions, for example, right? And I think about, well, you know, how are the trade unions in the digital age and the age of AI able to, to, to challenge a decision made by a machine around someone's performance, you know? So um, yeah. how is, and, and similarly in the banking sector, how is it, you know, how do we know if somebody's denied a loan and how is somebody going to be able to say, well, actually, this decision is made by a machine and want to have it reviewed and, and all of that. I mean, I do wonder, though, whether, and that's probably the main risk that I see about this technology, I think they will exacerbate the socioeconomic divide between people and let alone, you know, racial disparities. Because, mm. I mean... Some people will have the tools to hit back and challenge, but some others won't. And I think I'm not afraid of deployment of these technologies. What I'm afraid of is that the support around challenging them and the support around creating the awareness that you are talking about, Radka, you know, that mm. is not going to be there. Because, you know, if you have to, if you're, I mean, taking the US, you know, where, for example, you have a right of a criminal lawyer, you know, if you if you if it's under criminal law, but you don't have a right if you're poor, you don't have a right for you know civil courses, you don't have a right to that. So what happens if you get harmed by an algorithm that doesn't mm -hmm. give you access to housing? Who is gonna help you challenge it? And mm -hmm. and in a in a situation where you have you know that the majority of people coming from poor background in a, in in a sort of because of the structural racism we live in as a society um, brought to the fore. You know, with the visualization of of of, of the, the killing of, of of a black man in in the U.S. With, in, a few months ago, then you know, in this kind of society we live in, then the majority of the people who've got less resources are people of color, women, and migrants and refugees. So my situation, my, I think my fear is is when we talk about awareness in the population, my fear is, you know, will it actually make it harder for some people to challenge and easier for others? And will this lead without the, 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 without the right safeguards, will it actually lead to even further entrenched digital and social and economic divide? I mean, I see it more that way. Because you mean you can say to me, yes, you know, we people need to know that their data is managed by an algorithm. People need to know that their decision. But and so what, you know, so if they can't challenge, mm. what, you know, if there is no redress mechanism, if there is no body where somebody can go and say this machine has made the decision, if there is no, I'm, I'm more concerned about all of that mm. and how that impacts on on discrimination and equality in, in our societies. I, right. I, I think it makes sense uh, because yes we we are building a society for humans not for for machines essentially and and it is the humans who should be best served by whatever uh, it is uh, you know whatever rules yeah. we have within the within the society yeah. but it's also the language i don't know if you have the same language in in Serbia at the moment but you know the language is that when for example i think you know human and machines can cooperate I mean, I don't have any problem imagining a society where we can all live together. We already do. I mean, uh, technology already mediates a lot of what we do. Mm. You know, if, if, if people drive too fast, the solution is technological, is to put a speed bump in the middle of the street. Mm. Mm. You know, that is an artifact that changes your behavior. So I mm. don't have any problem in, in artifacts living with human beings. That's not my problem. The problem is that is the language around it. You know, when you think about... Um, when you think about um, how AI can make our life better work, no? you always talk about the wealthy professions, you know, like lawyers, 
and like you know ai can make it better because it can help you going through lots of information if you're a doctor oh ai can really help you because it can really help uh, um, making a better decision and prevent uh, disease way before it materializes but when you talk about a carer do you ever ask how is ai going to make a life better or is life better hmm. You know, it's just the language which is, is is wrong, and and the access to information which is wrong, and and I do wonder, you know, it's like, uh, is AI just going to make all this worse? Yeah, yeah, that's a good uh, that that's a good point, and and, and on that topic, you know, uh, as I mentioned, some of the uh, and and as you mentioned in your book, some of the uh, AI actually works because there has been such an enormous human input into it so um, it is uh, in in many ways still not worth much be, be, you know without the the massive amounts of information um, collected into it and you mentioned these um, the 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 gap that exists between uh, the silicon valley tech giants and the you know literally or or at least uh, metaphorically uh, the sweatshop workers who actually look through uh, the disturbing images, for example, or uh, some of the data that actually uh, allows these uh, these platforms to to function. But at the same time, you 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 also uh, put a sentence in there that I want to quote that I think it is also very important because it in many ways uh, is uh, an illustration of the dilemma that I have on, on this issue. You say, we can't overlook the fact that to some people this is uh, a ticket out of poverty and perhaps the only one. And, and I think this is also extremely, extremely important because without this opportunity, I'm, I'm just thinking without that being in place, the alternatives are for, for that society to catch up um, you know, uh, much more slowly with uh, with the Western society. So, yeah, yeah. How, I mean, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's 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 full of contradiction, isn't it? So it's it's just um, so the first thing is a lot of times when people talk about jobs in AI is all flashy. You know, it's like all oh, great, and in reality, there's a lot of manual work. So everybody people talk about AI, they say it's automated. Yes, but. Not really. There's a lot of manual labor underpinning AI. And I think what is in, why do we mention that? Because it's the honesty. You know, we've got to be honest and say the cost of developing AI is having loads and loads of people sifting through horrible images sometimes. You know. If it's, for example, understand use, use of automated machines to identify violence online or rape, right? Then you, the cost of this is to put an individual day in, day out in front of images to train a system with post-traumatic st stress disorder, depression, and you know terrible life to 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 live with. You know, and this is happening in now. You know, so it's it's important to recognise the cost because everything is a trade-off, and and in the trade-off is where ethics comes in. And so um, if if we consider that is is okay to do that in the longer term, that's fine. But we've got to recognize that this is happening right now and put some support and, and a lot of and also recognition around these people mm. uh, and not treat treat them as ghost workers as, as you know they are defined now. Um, and the on the second, the other half of the problem there's a, it, my view is a little bit more complicated from an ethical standpoint because yes it's true that you can have somebody becoming middle class or because they spend their life in in doing some of this ghost laboring um but for whom for a silicon valley giant isn't it a way of colonialism mm. do you know so and that is where it becomes a little bit more complicated because it's like, well, you know, are we actually again invading another a place and 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 instead of letting a a, a an sort of local economy and and to to grow? Mm. Um, but the downside of it is that in reality, you know, we there is economic 
prosperity coming and and it's a very complex topic and and i i and i think you know it's very it's not really a technological one it's very much of a geopolitical one and mm. it's very much the result of the way that then uh sort of capitalist society has evolved you know so it's very much of a a political discussion but i think you know i think it's not so by the rule and and i'm already a bit concerned around this form of extractivism that i see mm. happening in other parts of the world from the hands of of, of corporations in 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 the rich west and I, I i'm very uncomfortable with it yes i i yeah i i shared the dilemma i think uh, i think you're right to point out that actually yes in these uh, gray areas in, in these trade-offs is where the ethics lie and where where we have to make a decision but um also the our decision on where to draw the line and and how to position ourselves is a part of politics and that is another of your interests and um Let's first start with politics and then uh, move towards geopolitics because I think it's it's a little bit more uh, more complex or or more interesting in, in some ways. Um, what are we seeing uh, in in developed countries in in recent years apart from the Congress hearings? Uh, what are we seeing as um, sort of I, I wouldn't call it as um, as a protest, but let's let's say a challenge to the current uh, status quo on this uh, extraction economy, on this attention economy? Uh, how do we see that going forward? From which perspective? From our citizens, policymakers, or? Yes. Uh, how do we think, you know, what are the citizens doing? What are the uh, civic organizations doing? And what are the, uh, you know, parties doing uh, to address this? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's, I think there's quite a lot happening. Um, not as much as I would like to happen, I, but I think there's more than we think. So from a sort of civic society, I think there is a, what we've seen is for the first time is some really some serious organizing. Um, so you've seen a, a lot of stuff happening. Um, Google for the first time has got an alphabet union. Um, and I'm very much in awe of this sort of this 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 people because to be honest, I mean a lot of the things that we know about what happens in these big companies, think about Amazon or is because of people putting their jobs and livelihood at risk. You know, it's 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 unbelievable. And mm. I mean we should take I mean honestly, I'm I mean, we're sitting here comfortably, you know, I'm I'm sitting in London, I'm a white woman, you know, it's, it's but you know, most of the people putting their neck on the line is 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 uh, black women mm. um and you know and 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 i think it's really important to recognize that and a lot of the stuff that we know that is happening a lot of the algorithms used and and the risks with the, the in with these technologies they they you know we know them because somebody has told us mm. The transparency hasn't come from these companies, you know, has come from from brave people. <laughs> and mm. and I think it's absolutely crucial to recognize that. So we're seeing this happening. Um, as I said, you know, I really encourage everyone to watch Code Bias um, on Netflix because it's just absolutely incredible that, you know, that that, that they're filming. Forget the social dilemma which is a story of, of, you know, people who've contributed to create the problems, then, you know, then saying, I'm sorry, you know, no. <laughs> Code bias is a story of people who've really brought this to the public domain. And, you know, I really would like everyone to watch that film. Um, but I'm, I find that, you know, we are seeing that happening. We're seeing for the first time court taking big companies you know, to, 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 to count and saying, excuse me, you know, you can't do this. I mean, look at what happened to Deliveroo, uh, not too far from you in Bologna, in Italy. Deliveroo had an algorithm which wasn't allowing people to differentiate the reasons why they wanted a cancellation of their shift. So the court said, hey, the fact that you can't differentiate is discriminatory because there are so many different reasons why a person, a rider, would want to cancel their shift. They may be looking after a sick child or they may want to attend a strike, which in Italy mm -hmm. can, be, can, you know, can be called at the very last minute. 
So the courts are grappling with this. You know, they, a lot of people are saying, well, but the courts didn't go as far as asking for the release of the algorithm. I said, oh, so what? You know, do we really need the release of the algorithm? Is that really the, the key thing here? Or is it, I mean, of course, I would want that. And I would want, you know, for example, trade unions to have data scientists to, to, to scrutinize the algorithms, you know. But, but the most important thing is that what we've seen is that courts are starting to say, hey, you know, that's not on. Um, you've got companies like Aviva, which is a huge insurance, saying we're not investing in the IPA from 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 Deliveroo because they don't respect workers' rights. Then you've got Uber. You've got. I mean, things are changing. You know, it's 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 really, um, and and it's important. And the the EU has been at the forefront of this, haven't they? You know, they the. Digital Services and the Digital Market Act, the Data Governance Act, these are all things that will erode the power and they will force force these companies to come to compromises. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's really, you know, so things, so things are changing, regulation catching up. I don't think any country now is not understanding that the power of, of this sort of big tech, big, big technological companies, technology companies, uh, and let's not forget, I mean, we are in, still in the middle of a pandemic. We've realized we've relied on these tools so much that, you know, they've become even more entrenched in our life. I mean, look at Amazon, uh, just like unbelievable how strong Amazon has become. You know, they, they, we've all used Amazon and they've become part of our infrastructure now. So it's it's not going to be an easy one, and I mm. think it will probably require a different approach coming from everybody. And and I mean I, I mean I came to privacy from a human rights background, so I came to, to it as an activist, and I now work in in private business with with load of fantastic, a lot of these sort of big tech companies that, that and a lot of you know and and it's great and it's absolutely mm. fantastic. The reason why I'm saying this is because we probably all of us we you know we need to realize that across all sectors, private, public, activists, you know, data privacy fanatics and professionals mm. and you know, commercial lawyers, we do have one thing is common, which is, which is, you know, to make these things work for everybody. And yes, of course, you know, we come from different perspectives and we have different angles and different approaches. But, but in reality, I think everyone now is realizing that the digital dividends are just too unfairly distributed. And, you know, it just cannot go on like this because nobody's benefited from it, you know. And and people, citizens are becoming more aware and they're starting to make their choice based on the new level of transparency. And this is the time for the law to step in. And, mm. you know, otherwise, well, you know, things will just, just get even more unfettered and, and wild. Yeah. And with all of this running in the background, it seems that uh, so many companies in the West are actually um, seeing persons of conscience speaking up and, and actually bringing this topic to, uh, to sunshine. And it is because of them, as you say, because of their courage, but, because, but also because the system is such that it incentivizes uh, uh, sort of conscientious behavior and ethical behavior, and because, uh, well, I wouldn't say the system as a whole, but uh, there, there are there are uh, kind of points within the society that are that there are these uh, people who actually have the courage, and and we reward them for it. They they uh, they ultimately are the champions of the privacy movement. They are the, the champions of uh, things like social dilemma and, and so on, even, even though we, we forget about their past. But with all of this in mind running in the background in the West, we still have uh, China in the, in the East that is, doesn't seem too bothered with, uh, with ethical uh, dilemmas. They, they do not seem bothered with, uh, with trade-offs and on the one hand, it is very, uh, very difficult to find the right balance between allowing these technologies to develop uh, because they can bring benefits, they can bring uh, competitive advantages. But on the same time, you know, being uh, being uh, ethical about developing them when others are not. So how do you see that geopolitical play unraveling? Yeah, I mean, that's why I support ethics, because I think it's not just a matter of 
to be fair, I mean, it's not just a matter of doing the right thing. It's also a matter of competition, isn't it? You know, mm. like, think about G GDPR. I mean, the GDPR was introduced by the EU and forced a lot of the world to adapt to it. So I'm talking about as a European, you know, live in London, mm. but, you know, I'm still, I'm Italian <laughs> by origin, and, and I still remain, you know, um, sort of um, fundamentally European. And I'm thinking, what is the reason why I think the soft power of Brussels is important? And I think it, one of the reasons why it's so important is because we can set rules that the next the world has to adapt to. Mm. Um, and one of this is ethics. So the fact, for example, that we say that we want a degree when it comes to high-risk AI, for example, which is the facial recognition, um, which is the, the sort of facial, the, the use of, of um, AI to, to give or deny a loan to somebody, you know, to high-risk AI, we want some controls, you know, in, in place. You know, that is important because what we're saying is, you know, we want this transparency, explainability, we want it as a general rule. And if you want to come and sell into the European citizens or, you know, or you want to compete for the large European markets, you have to adapt to this. Um, to an extent, it's the same that we've seen with international data transfers. You know, we've seen one privacy person, um, Max Schrems, standing up against Facebook, forcing the entire thing to collapse, not once, but twice. And then what happened is that, you know, the hope, the hope is that this will lead to, again, more alignment at global level, because ultimately, you know, data sharing is crucial. And I would want data to be shared freely, you know, by default. Um, but the, the the issue, the way we, so there is a matter of competition, you know, and and we are into this AI race, you know, constantly, which is the fact that, you know, all the big companies are based in the US and China because in the US there is there is a different approach based on consumers rather than citizens, and you know, but in but you know in the US now you have some important data protection legislation, and you have CCPA and CPRA, you know, you've got mm -hmm. some solid legislation. Um, and of course, you've got China, you know, and, and that, that is a completely different approach based on the state, based on 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 surveillance for for public interest, and 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 is a and is sort of a completely different approach. But I think, I think you, you know, you can't compete with that, can you? <laughs> so how can we compete with that? Um, and and it's um, so it's important that as you know, if if the question here is, is there a way which is a European way of doing things? Um, is there a way that, yes, we may not have the big Google and the big companies, but what comes after next, you know? What, what comes after that? What, what's next? And can that be incubated in a different scenario? I mean, I, I don't have the answers to that. What I know is that, what I know is that I'm, I think there are some elements of China that in the surveillance and that make you think, well, that's exactly, I don't, I don't want to live like that, you know, and in fact, with the facial recognition debate, I don't know you, but I find it, you know, I know Belgrade is a place where there is like, there's quite a lot of them, mm. but, and London as well, you know, so we live in two, we both live in two places where there's a lot of, a lot of facial recognition cameras or CCTV cameras, but you have to say, you know, are we happy with, with being monitored and how is that going to change the way that, you know, you could go for a drink with somebody in a park, you know, have a chat. Is that going to change the way you, you inhabit your public spaces? And, mm. and sometimes I think, well, I mean, when I went to China recently, before the pandemic, obviously, the UNESCO was in Beijing, and I just, the first 10 minutes you think, oh, I'm probably watched or probably scanned, or they probably know where I am. And then, like, especially if you come with a sort of diplomatic state, but then, but then after two hours you forget about it. And then, mm. and then I was like, no, no, I can't forget. This is really, really bad. Mm. How can I forget this? Um, and and yeah, that's quite concerning. Yeah, it's uh, it's the struggle between convenience uh, and and you know <laughs> leading a normal life and and being aware. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Serbia has signed the the agreement with uh, Huawei yeah. to get. Uh, you know, a countless, I think, uh, number of cameras that have this facial recognition software installed. But, you know, luckily we have, uh, you know, a very, very 
vibrant community that that opposes this and they've had recently a crowdfunding initiative that had led to you know some uh you know programs designed to actually address this issue in, in some way it is still you know far far uh ahead it it's uh, on the one hand th this is being rolled out on the the other hand uh there is little uh opposition to that uh, to 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 this movement of installing cameras so it is it is not the it is not the good story but you know i think we're we're closing uh, the the end of our conversation i wanted to ask you also you know let's see uh, turn into you know from from this sort of a bleak or dark presence towards a, a brighter future so let's try to uh, come up with things that our listeners can do in order to uh, either make a difference for themselves, their uh, you know community uh, that is close to them, or their community at large. So, what would you recommend in addition to uh, to watching coded bias, uh, and uh, you know what kind of engagement would would make sense? Do we yeah. delete our uh, do, do we delete some applications? Do we put some anti anti ad uh, uh, blockers? So what what do we do to yeah, address? Yeah, I mean, you know, we all have our sort of um, threshold when it comes to privacy. You know, so it's it's. I would recommend people to to really um, think about the threshold. It's really important. You know, what makes them uncomfortable, and if they feel that you know being, um, for example my perspective on 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 privacy is very much related to autonomy of thinking so i find disconcerting anything that is 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 trying to, to impose or edit things for me and mm. i and i so and and then i demand and i and i look at tools that i can use to, to achieve that because i don't want to be to be served i don't want to be put in an echo chamber and want to be put in a, mm -hmm. I just want my, my thinking because and especially my thinking coming from discussions like the one you and I are having you know I don't mm -hmm. you know, so um so that, that's the first thing you know understand your thresholds and 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 what makes you comfortable and uncomfortable and and then act on that the second thing would be to familiarize with with the the enormous debate that is going on out there and around sort of um, uh, the intersection between artificial intelligence technology and justice mm -hmm. and and which is really important you know a lot of people come to this probably you and I have come to this because we're both white we've come to this from a privacy angle uh, but a lot of people come to this from a, a race angle which is much more than an individual right. You know, it's it's about justice. Um, so I would recommend to read uh, Rua Benjamin. Um, I would recommend to to read Joy Bonawini. Um, I would recommend you know all these sort of fantastic women that are this in in the space and and they are really looking at the intersection between technology and and justice, because you know we can look at algorithms and say well they're not fair, but the problem is even if you have the most amazing technological product, that doesn't make make you the the way that you you know the way that you deploy it may still be profoundly unfair, so mm -hmm. algorithmic sort of algorithmic fairness is very different from social justice you know so and this link between technology and justice and how strongly they interconnect is so important and i've i've, I've come to journey journey myself you know so, so read all these fantastic stories you know that and, and what this 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 especially black women uh, and this is very important this at this moment in time where we've got a global pandemic which is increasing inequality where we have seen black lives matter bringing you know the topic of, of of structural racism so prominent in our society and the pandemic on top of it we don't want you know to to, to sleepwalk into like an even more uh, divided society so understanding that link is important and the third thing is is to really understanding the political dynamics within this you know and and mm -hmm. and encourage politicians at every level to talk about this and not just politicians but you know i'm having conversations about these things at the kitchen table you know we we're not having this stuff you know 10 years ago but we've got to talk about these things everywhere because technologies is the fact that you you know the fact that, that when you use google maps you are driven to visit certain places and not others there's nothing neutral about all this 
And, you know, people need to familiarize with it. Technology is fantastic, but let's make it even more great. Let's right. make it more great by making it uh, work for, for everybody and not just for a few people. Make technology great again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Ivana, thank you so much for this uh, conversation. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I enjoyed every, every minute of it. And uh, good luck for our, for our joint uh, fight. Thank you. Great to be with you. 